I don't know if any of you noticed, but there was a trial earlier this year between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Oh, yes. Um, you may have heard something about it. I didn't intend to watch it. Did any of you watch it? I just figured Amber Heard uh, was an abuse victim and Johnny Depp was her abuser, so what's to watch? We're just going to watch, like, some crazy drug addict uh, try to talk his way out of being an abuser. So my wife, Carol, and I weren't going to watch it, but then, I don't know, I saw a clip of it or something, and it was intriguing, and I was like, wait a moment, I may have this all backwards. And then we decided to backtrack. We were both interested, and we both decided to watch it from the beginning. And uh, it was like watching a very long... Uh, limited run series of Twin Peaks or something <laughs> like every every witness was a character. Um, and it turns out we had it backwards. Uh, Amber Heard, in fact, is the abuser and Johnny Depp is the uh, victim of abuse. So that was an interesting twist. Didn't see that coming. Um, and you may not know that if you've only watched the mainstream coverage and haven't actually watched the trial. Um, because we did see some of the court TV and somewhere else where they tried to either do the both sides ism or make it seem as though, I mean, court TV, one of the talking heads there even said, Johnny Depp, you know, he's clearly not somebody you would ever want to hang out with. You know, it was like one of those things, but he's making a good point here, but so is Amber Heard. Like they're trying to play off the fact that, that, um, I guess get us to ignore that, that when Amber Heard testifies, she sounds like a sociopath, that she cannot act, cannot even fake cry. It was like watching an episode of Divorce Court, where they do, like, divorce court reenactments with the worst actors ever. She's that. That's what she was. And um, and also they had, for some reason, audio that mo mostly that she recorded. She just recorded him doing all this stuff throughout their marriage, all these arguments and stuff. And for some reason, she thought that audio made her look good, and it actually makes her look awful. Um, but you might not know that, again, if you just paid attention to the mainstream, because they barely paid attention to this. And in some ways, because of that, it became um, about mainstream media versus online, because one of the things that came to uh, bloom is the the popularity of what is called LawTube, which is basically just YouTube lawyers you know, or lawyers on YouTube, you know, watching the trial and commenting on it, but giving really good from what we saw anyway. Of course, we didn't watch every LawTube person, but three or four, a handful, uh, gave really good assessments of what was going on. And I think the mainstream didn't like that too much um, because they're supposed to tell you how reality is. Uh, to paraphrase something Andrea Mitchell actually said on her own show. So, but not about this. She just was talking in general about social media and, and how you're supposed to go to us to know what's going on in the world and, and how to frame it. <laughs> uh, you know, not if you're a bunch of hacks, I guess, is the answer to that. Um. But it's really, in that sense, it's a story about ad revenue versus um, 
online donations. And those online donations, you know, if, if you these online law tubers can form a community around themselves and have a perpetual donation machine from um, people who watch them. And I think the mainstream media is like, no, this is further the death knell of us. Also interesting was that Amber Heard's um, two psychological analysts, um, I you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't diagnose them. Uh-huh. But I have to say that right before I before I give my opinion, I have to say, in my opinion, the one guy there was struck me as a raving loudmouth narcissist. And the woman there uh, on the psych team struck me as an untruthful, um, lackadaisical kind of hack. And yet you look at both of their backgrounds as their lawyers were fond of reading out their entire resumes before presenting them. And they have these amazing backgrounds, higher ups in their various fields. Uh, So it really, for me, raises the question of um, when we say oh, the common person isn't allowed to, quote-unquote, diagnose somebody by giving an opinion that they seem narcissistic or sociopathic or something. Leave that to the professionals. What if the professionals are that too, uh, man? <laughs> what, like, what makes them a professional? This is where I guess I am slightly sympathetic to the do-the-researcher people, except that the research they're doing isn't real research. When they say it, it's to do things like, um, you know... Deny a pandemic or insurrect. <laughs> but uh, when I say it, <laughs> I guess I, I, I mean it differently, but it's it's a similar place of like, right, we can't really we're seeing in action the limitations of being able to trust authorities with schooling. Um, now, obviously, you can't apply this across the board. Look at these two people and go, well, that's just the way it is everywhere. But it does make you wonder. Oh, yes, it does. Who is the professional psychologist and psychiatrist here? And this harkens back or forward. I don't know because I haven't placed the episodes in the season yet. But there's a uh, an episode uh, I'm doing on AI, uh, which harkens to this episode. So now I'll, I'll create a little feedback loop here and um, harken back to that episode, which is like with AI, does it matter? Um the whether the the computer programmer is trying specifically trying to create artificial intelligence that is sentient, you know, uh, specifically that category of computer development. Does it matter whether they're mentally ill? Does it matter whether they are neurodivergent? Does it matter if they take a psych test first before they start <laughs> before they're allowed to attempt to develop such things? Um. I guess the same question here applies to the studied psychologists. Like, shouldn't they take a psych test themselves before they deliver a psych test to Amber Heard or Johnny Depp? Um, I don't think they've, well, they didn't evaluate Johnny Depp, but they did evaluate Amber Heard. And she very clearly is demonstrating issues that they ignore. Uh, let's put it that way. In my opinion, 
Because you see, I'm not schooled like them, so I have to say that. <sighs> In any event, <laughs> I, I highly recommend watching all of the Depp Heard trial. If you're bored. <laughs> one day. One day. Well, take a carve out a week of your life, because like each each episode of this fantastic show is about eight hours long, seven hours long. But there's another thing there, which is that, yes, Johnny Depp is the victim. She is the victimizer. Um, the jury found this clearly. And now, of course, she's on like a speaking tour showing the world just what a bad actress she is trying to claim. Oh, no, it was the jury. It was the this. It was the that. My lawyers. It was everyone but me. Uh, I can tell you I did some things wrong, but I'll never name what those are. And if you bring them up, I will tell you those aren't them. Um, that's kind of the gist of what she's doing as of this recording. But uh, despite that, it's an example of what I've been talking about on this show and elsewhere of relationships like these marriages, long term commitment relationships are more often than not um, relationships of compatible dysfunction. So her background is that she is an abuse victim herself of her father, at least, um, who taught her how to break horses. And here she is breaking Johnny Depp and trying to break the public. Um, but yeah, he was in a, a physically abusive and mentally abusive person. And Johnny Depp came from an abusive background with his mom. Um, I don't remember. I think it was just mentally abusive, but I could be wrong. I think she was more so mentally abusive than anything, at least. Um, and here's Johnny Depp. Uh, now he has found himself in a relationship with his mother and she, has found herself being her father. Uh, this is to my uneducated, untrained, my own, only my opinion, I watching this. That's kind of what this is. And it's at a bad point in his life where he's trying to go through drug, drug addiction therapy. I want to say withdrawal, but I don't know if it's really that. But anyway, trying to get over the drinking and the drugs and she ain't helping. <laughs> uh, so you got all of that going on, all of these. But he also really doesn't want to get over it. So in a way, it's kind of perfect that she is his foil in him getting over his addictions. Um, so one thing you could say, one role that she serves in his life of like, why are you sticking in this relationship? Um. Well, he said on the stand he's sticking with a relationship because he didn't want it to fail. He, I mean, it's that simple. I mean, sometimes things are that simple. But then also, I think if you're an addict and you really want to be an addict, um, as he states uh, over and over, kind of he at least feels as though he's never not going to be an addict. Um, well, then she can be your enabler in that area. And if you're way into the highs and lows with with drugs, with your career, your lifestyle, well, here's a bipolar, you know, high-low relationship. Perfect. So all of this circles us to a question 
that you can find in the Sitting Circle message board at OurUndoing.com. Comes to us from Matt, and I think it's a pretty good multi-pronged question that probably a lot of people have, so I'm going to read it and um, dissect it. We're going to law tube it, but the pseudo-spiritual version. And away we go. Matt or Matthew... I don't know what he prefers. He probably prefers not to have his name said out loud, but (laughs) I won't say his last name. Uh, Asks the following. And I'm going to read it, uh, all of it, and then I will um, dissect it piece by piece. Matt asks, is marriage natural? Is it natural to be with one person for life? Is it more natural to view relationships as litmus tests for finding where you project onto others, and where your attachments are. Is it only natural to stay with a partner long enough to learn how to be whatever it is they had that we were lacking? Is the institution of marriage negated by awakening? Does awakening keep the status quo? Neither? Both? Let's break it down, baby. First, I should apologize uh, for if if I'm getting loud and then low in my volume. It's because I'm turning away from my microphone to uh, read the computer screen, and now it's raining. <laughs> so it's like Ray Yane on a wedding day. Hmm. Isn't that not at all ironic? Uh... All right, back to the computer screen then. Is marriage natural is the first question. And the answer is, uh, well, I mean, there are plenty of species in the animal kingdom who are uh, bonded pairs for life. So, sure. Why can't marriage be natural? I mean, as far as we know, we're... We at least have the ability, if we're not the culmination of, an amalgamation of, uh, all the stuff that every other species can do, we at least can opt in, <laughs> if we if we like. So one of the things we can opt into is being bonded for life. Why not? And that's basically the second question. Is it natural to be with one person for life? I mean, it's not natural or unnatural, right? Like, sure, it why not? Granted, it's uh, there's a whole lot of that compatible dysfunction stuff we were talking about earlier, but it doesn't have to be that, does it? But getting to that, I suppose, um, he goes on. Is it more natural to view relationships as litmus tests for finding where you project onto others and where your attachments are? And I guess sort of with that is the next question, which is, is it only natural to stay with a partner long enough to learn how to be whatever it is they had that we were lacking? And trying to decode that one a little bit in my head here. Um, I, so I apologize if, if I'm not exactly clear on what that's saying, but um, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I mean, essentially, you're asking, isn't it more natural to view this as... Um, as a way for us to figure ourselves out through being in relationship with another 
or to figure the other person out. Um, but really, selfishly, <laughs> to to see ourselves reflected in the mirror of relationship, isn't that the way to view marriage or long-term relationships? Um, and then say goodbye when it's done. And uh, that's certainly one way to approach it, but you've both got to be on the same page with that, you know, or else, you know, you're a sociopath, right? Like if someone else is just an object to this mirror for you to learn about yourself and they don't know it and you do, um, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty objectifying. So we don't want to do that. And I'm not saying, I'm not implying at all that that's what you're saying you want to do. I'm just saying for anyone listening, um, let's not do that. But I see no problem with uh, both people. I mean, with whatever the relationship is, as long as it's not harmful, if two adults are on the same page, go for it. Um, but no, I don't think it's necessarily more natural to view relationships as having that function. It can certainly be a healthful function. I mean, you could have a lifetime partnership with someone where that is what you do, you know, where I would think it would be hard to do because I think like secretly, you know, it would be, it would end up being passive aggressive stuff, <laughs> jabs at each other um, because you're both trying so hard to uh, be open and honest with each other that, let me put it this way, in service to understanding the self in the way that we talk about an hour and doing where the self is no more, as opposed to growing the self into a better uh, quote unquote, better or healthier or stronger sense of self. If you're trying to grow a strong sense of self through a partner, through mutually loving relationship and open honesty and having like sit down chats about each other and that sort of thing. Um, maybe that can work, but I think if it's in service to shattering the self, well, the self wants to remain intact. The self in fact would rather be stronger than, annihilated, right? And so I think that would ultimately, even with its best intentions, end up in um, at least passive-aggressive behavior because you really don't want that, even even if you do. Unconsciously, you don't want that, even if consciously that's your goal. That That's just my, my hot take on what would happen. Um, and then, is the institution of marriage negated by awakening? Does awakening keep the status quo, neither, both? Well, here's, okay, so here's the ultimate pullback perspective that I think you're waiting for, maybe. Um, which is, let's go to the ocean analogy. And let's, let's say what we're talking about here. Let's forget about the word enlightenment. Let's just talk about love. Now, the personal small L love. When we say we're in love, we love each other and all that, which can, and often does mean, um, we are attra chemically attracted to each other through compatible dysfunctions or whatever it is, you know, uh, that ain't it. That's playtime. That's a feeling. That's an attraction. And when that attraction, that feeling goes away, what are you left with? Hopefully a friend, but sometimes an enemy. Um, but if we look at big L love, impersonal love, and if we look at all of this again as an ocean, we would say that the, the personal 
self, the personal love that one has or feels, uh, would be like a shallow little tide pool. And impersonal love is the entirety of the ocean. Now, when people hear that, and then they claim to be enlightened, they often say like, well, this means why would I, uh, or how could I possibly um, concentrate on loving the few when I need to love the many? You know, some nonsense like that. Why do for the few when I can do for the many? Well, if you can't do for the few, what are you going to do for the many? (laughs) If you can't look at yourself in relationship with one person or uh, two or three people or 10 people, what do you think you're going to become to a mass of people? Um, exactly what you want to become a mouthpiece for you. Um, a narcissistic guru type, right? Um, the fact is the so-called enlightenment with, you know, the being impersonal love, understanding yourself as oneself includes, doesn't negate, but includes, the shallow tide pool includes the personal self. In improv, you'd say this is yes and, right? This is transcend and include. This isn't transcend and cut off, transcend and deny. The thing that gets denied, or well, not denied, but the thing that gets worked through and therefore is irrelevant to such a one, um, is the dysfunction. So that leaves you in functional relationships, Um And often you being that person, that wholeness, will affect the other person. But if it does not affect the other person, if that person is like a nut, (laughs) you know, is is horribly abusive and all of that, well, obviously then you would know that the healthiest thing to do for you and for them is to stop the relationship, is to not get married or to get divorced. But it's not as though you, you know, wake up into so-called enlightenment and then oh, suddenly you've got to get divorced because um, your relationship formerly was one of compatible dysfunctions and now it's not that anymore. Um, I mean, ultimately, the decision, if if that is even the right word, I mean, the sort of choiceless action is going to be the healthiest action. So that may include divorce and it may not. So you're asking, does awakening keep the status quo? I mean, the awakening... Neither or both. That, that, those are your final questions. The, the awakening doesn't care. The awakening simply is you seeing everything for what it is. So I'll use me as an example, and I will not use relationship. I will use um, ambition. When I was living in New York and I really, really wanted to uh, write and produce um, in television, uh, that was my goal. That was why I was in New York. That was my whole self-centeredness. Um, I was my you know whole life was working toward this ambition of being a uh well a writer i mean ultimately a tv and then film writer and hopefully director you know i had big plans for me um and then when i had the so-called enlightenment experience uh i mean that is being wholeness and in wholeness there is no more ambition because you're not searching for anything to fulfill you. You are fulfillment. You are fulfilling. Um, And so that falls away. The love of the arts falls away. Don't care about music. Don't care about dance. Don't care about cinema. Don't care about TV. None of it. 
But that not caring about it doesn't mean that you're anti it. It doesn't mean like, oh, gross, this stuff. Because there's also no sense of boredom. <laughs> so you can take it or leave it. It's just you're just neutral in it. You're not controlled by it. You're not swayed by it. You can have fun, but the fun is more like in delighting in the, the, the fun that others are having as opposed to actually getting anything out of it. Um, because these artistic endeavors, for, let's just stick with that, are um, self-exploration and uh, self-growth, expressions of that, um, self-expression, essentially, and groping around and trying to figure things out and the various moods that you can create in that situation for other people to connect with. I mean, all that stuff is just um, irrelevant. So irrelevant in the sense that like, again, you're not anti music any, you know, where before maybe you were a musician or maybe you were like, music is everything, man. I can't live without my records. Well, now you can live without your records and you can still be a musician. It's just a choice. You know, you're not you're not a slave to the rhythm, as Michael Jackson might say. You're not someone who's bouncing around looking for something to do, going from interest to interest, looking for that passion because you're compassion. You are passion. And frankly, what partner doesn't want to be with you <laughs> when, when you're when you're going through all that? I mean, <laughs> that can only make them feel good about themselves. I'm kidding. The thing that's tricky is that now if you're in a position where you no longer have these attachments, you no longer have these desires and these wants, you are some perfectly balanced inner psychological construct leading with truth and love and all that, there is the legit concern or question of, is your partner on board for that? Uh... I mean, you you should have an open relationship, open and honest relationship about what you're intending for your life, like, you know, which is a weird conversation to have, right? To be like, okay, I know I'm a whatever it is. I'm a Wall Street analyst. I'm a an artist. I'm a whatever I am um, as my job, and and here are my interests. But my meta interest is to drop all of that and to have my body understand that the desire-filled seeker needs to be annihilated for truth to speak through this body. I mean, that, that's, that's ultimately my goal is to not be here as you know me anymore, but to be here and I don't know what form that will take because I can't know because to have an image of it is to project an answer and that will just be a self-fulfilling prophecy and not real. So I can't even know what comes after said annihilation. I just know that that's my, if I, if I had to choose a perfect life, it would be that I wouldn't be here anymore. You know, as I am now, I would be transformed. Uh, are you in, <laughs> you know, that might be a tough sell. I don't know. Um, I, I know that for me, I thought when I went through my ordeal, um, when I had the first death of self, you know, the one where I, I've talked about this where I'm sitting on a couch and I finally get what Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti is saying and all of his, the books I've been reading. And it finally dawns on me that I am 
this person who gets it is the final person. Like I'm still there. Like, like why haven't I quote unquote transcended? Why haven't I gotten this? It's because I'm the guy who intellectually does get it. And that person is the impediment. And then I had, Oh, and then boing, uh, Kundalini awakening moment of silence, Kundalini awakening, all of that. Prior to that was the onset actually of my happy, joy, joy, lovey-dovey stuff, because I'd been working out my own psychology, peeling away layers of childhood trauma and issues like an onion until there's almost nothing left, nothing left but this happy, happy, joy, joy guy who gets it intellectually and feels really good. And then once I got rid of that guy, um, again, moment of silence and kundalini, and um, I was still... Uh, having relationships and things like that, you know, uh, through those phases. It was only after the I am awakening, you know, the seeing and being the universe um, exploding into existence and all that, that I had the, I don't know, my own sense at least of, oh, I don't get to be that guy anymore. I've got, you know, the thing that you're concerned with, right? That's how I felt like I've got to be a solo act. And this was made based based on like everything I've seen, (laughs) really like media stuff about enlightenment and about, you know, what it means to be alone, to be solitary. And if you can't be the man in the cave because you live in the big, big apple, then you've at least got to be the man in the man cave who (laughs) uh, doesn't go on dates, I guess. So I played that role for a while, and ultimately, um, that wasn't true either. That was just something that I was making assumptions based on other people, based on sort of archetypal, uh, or what has become sort of archetypal caricatures in media. It's like, oh, I guess I've got to be that monk guy now, right? And in fact, I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. And right after this happened, um, which I, because I thought I had to, and I was wrong. So sorry, (laughs) sorry, ex-girlfriend, but now I'm happily married. So look at how that works out. But, uh, but with the, you know, my being able to be married is, is also through the good fortune of that she understands all of this about me. So the conversation is really easy. You know, it's not as though like we can both go into it without blinders on about any of this stuff and about what it potentially means. If, if there's another death of self for yours, truly, um, what does that mean to someone who's gone through these two different types of death of self? Will I be here anymore? Will I, will it be a physical death? Will it be like, I get, sucked through a straw into some interdimensionality. I don't know. I'm just, you know, spitballing sci-fi plots for you. But I don't know, right? Like, that's ultimately I can't know. And she can't know. And are you willing to take that chance? That's a risk. Especially if you're not willing to uh, do this stuff yourself to the extent that, that I've been with it, you know? It's just a conversation that you have. But... The conversation that I have about that would be different than the conversation you would have because I have gone through death of self um, a few times here. 
in the different ways. And um, I have been careful with it. And I do like when you go through it, you know, you know, different things. Right. And so if I were to have had this type of conversation prior to to this ever happening to me at all, it would necessarily be a conversation that gets in the way of it happening. Because you're imagining, oh, what happens if, what if will I be, you know, it all, it all becomes a blockage to it happening. Whereas after the fact, after I've already had it happen, well, it's not a blockage to me having it happen anymore because it's already happened. I'm Jer 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever, you know? So my getting to Jer 4.0 is going to take something else. So these problems aren't my problems, but they are your problems. Um, so that, that would be my, just my word of, um, caution or of like, watch this in yourself. Why are you really asking this? Um, because you're not there yet. Uh, if you haven't had that death of self, it's really just more concerns and words to get in the way so that you never do. You know what I mean? It's projecting a future or a possibility. It's having conversations about these sort of fear-based possibilities. What happens if, um, and then imagining what happens if, as a means, unconsciously, to keep yourself from actually doing it or not doing it, you know, for the body to relax the sense of self. It's keeping you engaged and keeping you away, keeping you alive. I mean, if you had a conversation with a significant other about, listen, I secretly want to be a superhero. <laughs> I see. I secretly, uh, you see all this stuff, all my hopes and dreams and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's one. That's one aspect of me. But my my deeper inner aspiration is to achieve no self. And I don't know how this no self is going to affect our marriage. So maybe we shouldn't even be together. Well, I mean, if you're having that conversation. That's all self. And that's all self projecting self into the future, securing self's uh, selfhood, aliveness, personhood in the here and now through having discussions about the future, even though that future is ostensibly about no self. It's not. It's not about no self. See, this is how tricky we are. This is how deeply we have to look at ourselves. And if you could be in a relationship with another person where you're both that deep with it and that clear and honest uh, about where you are with your concerns, like what, what really underlies the feeling of those concerns beyond the alleged concerns themselves, well, that would be a relationship worth having. But I must stress... I'm not a professional. These are not my, my opinions or whatever, whatever it is. I hope it's helpful.